Welcome to Living Faith, the podcast ministry of First Baptist Church, Avon Park, Florida. Jesus is pointing to himself, and he's pointing to God, saying God is a spirit. So if you're going to approach God in worship, you have to approach him through the spirit, not through the flesh. You must approach God in the spirit. You already have the fullness of him, but just ask God, fill me with the Holy Spirit, and you will want nothing else. Welcome to the Midweek Edition of Living Faith. The Midweek Edition features teaching from our Wednesday night student Bible study, FBC 180. Our current series is Foretaste, Corporate Worship and Eternity. Did you know that our corporate worship time on Sunday morning is just a sample, a foretaste of heaven? As believers gather to sing praises, offer prayers, and hear God speak to us through His Word, we are, in essence, rehearsing for eternity where we will, with the angels and the saints from every tribe and tongue, join in to honor and glorify God through Jesus Christ. This series is helping our students understand the importance and centrality of corporate worship on Sunday morning by teaching them what the Bible has to say about why and how we worship as a believing community. So get your Bible and pen and let's join in on Foretaste, Corporate Worship, and Eternity. Foretaste, Corporate Worship and Eternity. The whole point of this series, obviously, is to teach us, teach our students about corporate worship, um, what we do on Sunday morning, and, and why that's so important. Uh, there's a difference between what we do on Wednesday nights as a Bible study here at FBC 180 and what we do on Sunday morning when we all come together. That's because when we all come together on Sunday morning, we're not separated by age or anything else. We are one body of Christ. And Only at that time do we really see this picture of heaven. Do we really get this foretaste or sample of heaven that we're talking about? And that's something, it's an idea that's becoming lost in our culture because we so, even in Christian circles, want to separate according to our style preferences, our age, our gender, any number of things we can divide over, we divide over. And the worst thing is we create our own worship services because of it. And so... What I'm really hoping to do with this uh, series called Foretaste, Corporate Worship and Eternity is teach us and talk about here at FBC 180 why that uh, idea of corporate worship coming together as one body of Christ on Sunday mornings is so important and so unique. This is the sixth part of this series, and it's hard to believe that we've already been in Foretaste for six weeks, but we have, and uh, we're, we're now in this lesson on the second of two lessons on the how and what of worship. So the first four weeks we spent answering the question why. Why corporate worship? What, why do we do the things we do in corporate worship? And we talked from the Old Testament about the temple. We talked about the tabernacle. We talked about the priesthood, the sacrifices, the festivals. All of those Old Testament symbols and images and um, pictures that led us to the person of Jesus. And we talked about on that last week how Jesus fulfilled all those things. He fulfilled the temple and the tabernacle and the priesthood and the sacrifices and the festivals. And we talked about how he did those things. He is our priest. He is our sacrifice. He is the lamb. He is the temple because he's the dwelling place of the glory of God. 
John 1.14, when the word became flesh, he dwelt or tabernacled among us, and we beheld his glory. That glory that Moses could not see face to face, we see face to face only in the person of Jesus. Uh, Hebrews 1 tells us that Jesus is the radiance of the Father's glory, the exact imprint of his nature. Jesus says, when you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Paul says that Jesus is the fullness of the Godhead made visible in bodily form. So, when we see Jesus, we see the culmination, the fulfillment of the Old Testament visual forms of worship, temple, tabernacle, sacrifices, altars, festivals, etc., etc. So, we establish the fact that as Christians we come to worship through Jesus Christ, and that's the fullness of worship that we can attain. Um, and on that last week, we talked about why corporate worship is so important. On week number four, why corporate worship is so important. And that is because it gives us a glimpse of what heaven will be like. And that's really what this whole series is about. Now, last week, um, week five, we began answering this new question, the how and what of corporate worship. How should we worship and what do we do when we worship? Now, last week we talked about this question, does, God, uh, does it matter to God how we worship? And we weren't so much talking about elements and styles and preferences in worship as the heart with which we come to worship. And, of course, the answer to that question, does God care how we worship, is yes. And we base that on Jesus' words to the woman at the well in John 4 when he says, if you worship the Father, you must worship him in spirit and in truth. Now, in the Old Testament, the tabernacle, the temple, the sacrifices, the priesthood, all those things were physical. They were fleshly, not in a sinful sense, but just because they were material. They were physical. We could touch them. They were fleshly. But Jesus says to the woman at the well, it doesn't, it's in the future, it's not going to matter where you worship on this temple in Jerusalem or the Samaritan's temple, but you'll worship the Father in spirit and in truth. You will approach him via the Spirit. And that could be the Holy Spirit or just talking about spiritually in general. Either way, the, it means not in the flesh. You can't approach God through the law, through the works of the law, through festivals and all these things. You must approach him through the Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is certainly um, the proper avenue for that. Also, we must worship God in truth. And that means we worship God according to how he has taught us through the Scripture. We worship the God that we find in Scripture and not another God. And we worship God in the ways that he has told us to worship in Scripture. And that leads us to our conversation tonight. So first of all, for you guys tonight, I have a few, um, a few ideas for worship. Things we could incorporate on Sunday morning that, um, that might benefit us, that might help us learn more about worship. You, you tell me what you think about these things. Number one, what if we had a painting or drawing station? Painting or drawing station just around the sanctuary. You know, during the service, people go up, paint, and draw, and do whatever. It's just, it's art, right? I mean, it's, is it any less artsy than music, than the singing? So why can't we do those things in worship? Number two, how about sand art, sculpting, or clay molding? Has anybody ever seen sand art done before? When you, when you have the table and it's lit from underneath and there's sand on it and someone is moving their hands around making all these pictures, why can't we do that You know, during worship? So it's, it's kind of like music. You're creating things with your creativity and your imagination. Surely God likes that. How about number three? Dramatic sketches and skits. Little, little dramas uh, throughout the, uh, the, the, the service that you know, tell Bible stories or whatever. You know, why can't we do that? 
Or this is my, my personal favorite, number four, cooking stations. Why can't we um, have, you know, in addition to the painting and the sculpting and the drum, why can't we have on one corner maybe an omelet station? You know, an electric skillet, and people come up and order what they want. I mean, that's, that's a gift too, right? It's a creative gift to cook. There's a good reason why these things are not good ideas for corporate worship and why we should avoid them <laughs> and why we should not implement them. I'm obviously being um, sarcastic about recommending those things because I don't. Because our question tonight is this, does it matter to God what we do when we worship? And the answer, of course, is yes. God tells us in his word what to do and what not to do in worship. God tells us in his word what to do and what not to do in worship. So if we go back to those things I recommended, uh, painting, drawing, sand art, sculpting, clay, drama, skits, cooking, uh, things like that, and I ask you this question, why can't we do those things in corporate worship? Uh, we talked about them being creative and using your imagination. Is, the, is Are they any less artsy than music or playing the piano or the organ? No, no, they're not. They're, they're all creative gifts, but there's a big difference between the music and the singing and these things. And that is that God has told us to sing and to play instruments and to have music and use that gift to worship him. There's something significant about that, that he does not say to paint and to do sand art and things like that. There's a difference between those things. And the difference isn't just a matter of opinion or a matter of preference. It's a matter of what the Bible or the scriptures teach. God has been specific. God has been direct in telling us how we ought to worship him when we worship together. So first tonight, let's look at this. Let's turn to Exodus chapter 20. Exodus chapter 20. Um, as a little setup here in Exodus chapter 20, you have to remember that uh, Moses has gone up to the mountain to receive the Ten Commandments. And uh, the people are waiting on him to return with the law so they can know what God has told them and know what they ought to do to worship God. Just look at these first, um, first two commandments. Look at verse 3. You shall have no other gods before me. Okay, that's easy enough. Number four, you shall not make for your, verse four, commandment number two, you shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments first thing we see here is that God is specific about how to worship. He's specific about how we ought to worship him. What's that first commandment all about? What does it mean to have no other gods before me? I, idolatry? Yes. And to just worship or put anything before God um, is that. To put anything in your heart in devotion to God, whether it's an idol or a false god or a false teaching or whether it's just material goods. God says you shall have no other gods, something that you serve and love and worship before me. So what's number two all about? You shall not make for yourself a carved image. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or earth beneath or in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to it and serve it and worship it. What's, what's the difference between that commandment which obviously deals with making things, visual things with which to worship, and number one. 
they're two different commandments. Number two is not a commandment against idolatry. That's number one. You shall not have any other gods before me is number one. Whether that's a carved image like Baal or Dagon in the Old Testament, or today as people bow down to statues of Mary or the saints or even uh, the Buddha. Those are carved images. Those are carved images. And um, those are carved images. And... Um, but that is what is forbidden in commandment number one. You shall not serve Buddha. You shall not worship Baal or Dagon in the Old Testament, those gods of the Philistines. Um, so what, what is the difference of number two? The difference of number two is that God has said you will not worship via images. So number two, wrong worship is idolatry. Now we live in a culture and in a time when it is politically incorrect, considered mean, or not nice, to tell people they're wrong. It's especially a faux pas or, or, or sensitive if, if in Christian circles we try to tell other churches and other Christians that what they're doing is wrong. We, we live in a culture in which we just need to live and let live, just let people do what they're going to do. Let people believe what they're going to believe, and we have no right to tell anybody that they're wrong. And that's true, except in the case that you have an actual authority that has told you what is right and what is wrong. In other words, if I come up to you with mere man's opinion and say, you ought not to do this in your worship service, you can say, well, get lost. Who cares what you think? But if I come with the scripture and say, God has said that you ought to do this or ought not to do this in your worship service, there's a difference there, isn't there? So we must base these things on the Bible. And when God has spoken what to do and what not to do, if we disobey those things or go beyond those things, that's wrong worship. And in the end, that's just idolatry, worshiping a false god. Number three, we are not free to worship God however we like. God has told us how to worship him. Now, this is not some kind of mean thing on behalf of God. Remember those priests on the Day of Atonement? They had specific instructions on how to enter the uh, Holy of Holies. If they were just to go in willy-nilly without obeying God and without listening to his instructions and his warnings, what happens to them? They die, right? They die. They, God lashes out against them in his holiness, and they die. So this is God saying, please worship me. Please love me. Please come and serve me. But I'm going to show you how, and you need to obey those things. Let's look at what happens in one instance when Israel disobeys this. Look at Exodus chapter 32. Remember that second commandment. Do not make carved images. Do not make graven images. Um, and remember that that's a different commandment than the first one. Remember Moses by this time in Exodus chapter 32. It's nearing the end of the time he's been up on the mountain. Um, for the 40 days and 40 nights, the people haven't seen him, the people haven't heard him. They're waiting on God to tell them to, what to do through Moses. They're waiting on their leader, and he's not showing, and they're getting a bit impatient. And instead of waiting on Moses and waiting for God's instruction, they decide here to invent their own way of worship, to decide for themselves how they're going to um, worship God. Exodus 32, verse 1, When the people saw that Moses delayed... To come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, Up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us down out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. 
We don't know where Moses is. So Aaron said to them, Take off the rings of gold that are in the ears of your wives, your sons, your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And they received the gold from them and fashioned them with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Now you have to understand that when it says, These are your gods, that could also simply be translated, This is your God. Um, because the word for God in the Old Testament, Elohim, is plural. And we don't have time to get into what that entails, but that was God's title, God, and it's actually plural, gods. So when you look at it here, um, it could be, this is your God, O Israel. And there's evidence to support this uh, translation here. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it, and Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast day to the Lord, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. That's the divine name, Yahweh. And it references, these are the gods that brought you up out of the land of Egypt later. So here's the question. Were the Israelites worshiping the golden calf? No. Were they worshiping some god they found out about in Egypt? No. They're, they're attempting to worship who? Right, God. They're attempting to worship Yahweh. That covenant name is used there. They're, they're attempting to worship the God that Moses has told them about, that they're waiting to hear from, the God they know of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They're attempting to worship him, but they're doing it by making a golden calf to represent him. They're trying to make a physical representation of this God, Yahweh, and he has specifically told them not to. Remember commandment number two. So number one, God restricted worship through images. Number two, number two, they were trying to worship God. They were trying truly to worship Yahweh, the God who brought them out of Egypt. Capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. That's the feast day they celebrate, Yahweh. Not another God, but Yahweh. They're trying to worship the true God in a way he has not told them. And number three, they were trying to worship God in ways he has not commanded. In fact, worshiping in ways he had forbidden Let's keep looking in the Old Testament now. Go from Genesis over to Numbers. Numbers chapter 7. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers. All connected in the story. And Numbers is a detailed account of the number of people there are dividing up the tribes, dividing up the land. And there's some more stuff about the temple or the tabernacle and its uh, furnishings. So look at Numbers chapter 7, uh, chapter 7, verse 9. And listen to this. But the service of the holy things, that's the things that are in the, the tabernacle, the ark, the, the altar, the tables, the tent poles, all these things. The service of the holy things had to be carried on the shoulder by the sons of Kohath. They were charged to carry these things on their shoulder. Look at Numbers chapter 4, verse 15, just a few chapters earlier. Verse 15, Numbers 4, 15. And when Aaron and his sons have finished covering the sanctuary and all the furnishings of the sanctuary, as the camp sets out, after that the sons of Kohath shall come and carry these, but they must not touch the holy things lest they die. These are the things of the tent of meeting that the sons of Kohath are to carry. So what we see here are two things. God's very specific. Number one, the ark and all the holy things of the tabernacle were to be carried on the shoulders of Levites, these sons of Kohath. Um, in the tribe of Levi. They were to be carried by them on the shoulders. Okay, two things. Number one, the holy things, the ark, the altar, everything, these things should not and could not be touched or the people 
uh, these co sons of Kohath or anybody would die. Okay, They were to carry them on their shoulders, and they were not to touch them, or they would die. Now, just like the golden calf, um, this instruction is not followed by everyone, and we're going to see what happens if you will turn to 2 Samuel, 2 Samuel chapter 6. 2 Samuel chapter 6, a little later um, after these books. Now what we have to understand here is the context as well, a little, his, a little historical context. Um, the Philistines had uh, defeated Israel temporarily and captured the ark, and, and that's bad. David, in turn, defeat King David, the mighty king, defeats the Philistines and is bringing the ark back to Jerusalem. Okay, so he's on a mission, he's got the ark, and he's bringing it back to Jerusalem with um, a bunch of his mighty men as they come back. Look at 2 Samuel chapter 6, verse 1. David again gathered all the chosen men of Israel, 30,000, that's a lot, and David arose and went with all the people who were with him from Baal, Judah, to bring up from there the ark of God, which is called by the name of the Lord of hosts, who sits enthroned on the cherubim, what that's on the ark. And they carried the ark of God on a new cart and brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which was on a hill. And Uzzah and Ahio, the sons of Abinadab, were driving the new cart with the ark of God. And Ahio went before the ark. And David and all the house of Israel were celebrating before the Lord with songs and lyres and harps and tambourines and castanets and cymbals. And when they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah put out his hand to the ark of God and took hold of it, for the oxen stumbled. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah, and God struck him down there because of his error, and he died there because of the anger uh, beside the ark of God. Number one, remember from Numbers, okay? Remember how they're to be carried and what's not to be done, and tell me what the first mistake you see is. Yeah, the ark was rolled on a cart, um, some sort of cart being driven by Ahio and Uzzah, and oxen are apparently pulling this, um, this cart with the ark on it. So there's uh, problem number one. Um, problem number two, uh, it was supposed to be carried on the shoulders, right, by Levites. Number two, what's the second problem that happens? Yes, Uzzah touches the holy ark. He touches the holy things. Okay, and God's anger was kindled. Number three, God's anger was kindled against him. He lashes out and kills Uzzah. Now, Uzzah is not doing something evil. He's not doing a wicked thing here necessarily, you know, ethically and morally and all, you know, foundationally. He's trying to help. He's concerned for the glory of God. Now, first of all, he's traveled with these men into enemy territory to get the ark. And so there's one thing. He's bringing it back to Jerusalem. He cares about the glory of God through the ark. And um, he, he, he wants God to be glorified and the ark to be honored. He's not doing anything sinful necessarily, except that he does something that God tells him not to do. And he tries to touch the ark as it begins to fall. And God kills him. Now at this point, you might be asking, why in the world is God so picky? Why does he seem so nitpicky about how he is worshipped, how he's approached? Why does he seem so easily angered? This doesn't sound like the God that we talk about that's merciful and mighty and um, the God that's slow to anger. He certainly doesn't seem slow to anger here, does he? But there's a reason God is doing this. Why is God so picky? 
Number one, God was protecting Israel from the false idol worship of the other nations. Let me ask you a question. Israel's coming out of Egypt. Did, it, did Egypt worship the one true and living God? No, they worshiped many false gods through idols. And now Israel is coming out of Egypt and up into the land of Canaan that's inhabited by the Philistines, the Canaanites, the Moabites, and any number of other peoples. All these people we, we've been reading about on uh, Sunday morning in uh, Amos. Uh, their ancestors occupied this land, foreign peoples who God has not called, God has not revealed himself to. And so they're worshiping idols, they're worshiping false gods. One such false god was called by the name of Molech. Uh, Molech was considered the demon god, and uh, he was worshipped through living child sacrifices. There would be an altar or, or an, uh, an idol, a statue built of this demon god Molech, and a fire would either be built under him or inside of the actual idol until he would literally become red hot with the fire. And then these families who were attempting to appease him would place children and babies alive onto the red-hot hands of Molech, or they would cause them to pass through the fire. You see that several times in the Old Testament about people causing their children to pass through the fire. That means they were burning them alive in this cultic, satanic, demonic worship of Molech. That's terrible, and it should disgust you, and it is awful. Another way people worship, consider the god Baal. Baal was the god of fertility and um, abundance and that not only meant you know abundance and fertility in your crops and in your plants but it meant children and bearing children and populating and so there's this sexual element to Baal and I don't want to be too graphic tonight for our mixed audience here so I'm going to try to maintain uh, a little bit of coverage on this but just for your information um, Baal, being a god of fertility, influenced a lot by sex, uh, in his temples there were hired temple prostitutes, both, both male and female, and when you came in to worship Baal, one of the best ways you could worship him was by buying one of these temple prostitutes and literally committing acts of sexual immorality on his altar or near his altar. Some people would go up to high places. You see that used in you know, high places like hills and mountains and do these awful things because they thought they were closer to Baal. And by doing these things in front of him, they would please him and he would bless the crops and bless their childbearing. So these were awful things that people did all in the name of trying to worship their God. And there's no excuse for it whatsoever. It's evil and God punishes them for it and will punish them for it at the end of time. But... On one hand, you can say they did not know any better. And Israel would not have known any better had God not called Abraham out of an idolatrous culture and called him to worship the one true and living God, the God that the Hebrews would then know as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They would not have known any better had they not had that, had they not had the law and Moses. They would not have known any better. So God is protecting them from this whole vile practice of child sacrifice and the sexual immorality and the worship of Baal. He's protecting them from these awful things. And the list of atrocities could go on and on with how people thought they should worship their false gods. And God was keeping his people from that. Number two, God was demonstrating his holiness. God was demonstrating his holiness and that he desired the people to be holy, separate, set apart, 
for him. They were to be different from the nations around him. And so he tells them exactly how to worship him and forbids these other evil, idolatrous practices. So, as New Testament Christians, you know, we're not necessarily living in the law of Moses according to the festivals and the temple and the tabernacle. So as Christians, under Jesus Christ and the New Covenant, do you think it matters how we worship today? Yes, it does. And the New Testament gives us instruction on how to worship God based on what Jesus has done for us in the Gospels. And that's what the apostles spend some time doing. Turn to the book of 1 Timothy. 1 Timothy chapter 2. Here in 1 Timothy, Paul is telling a young pastor, Timothy, about how, how he ought to conduct himself amongst the Christians or the church there where he was. And in 1 Timothy 2, verse 1, we see this. First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people. Okay? What, what is this? Paul is commanding that the people in the church should pray. Yes, they should pray. Um, let me ask you a question. Can you only pray in church? No. Can you pray on your own? Absolutely. Do you need to go to a pastor or go to the church to pray? Absolutely not. You don't need those mediators because Jesus is the mediator. So it's not about being in church to pray. But something there is something special about being with all of God's people for worship and everyone collectively praying to God. There's something special about God's people coming together and speaking and praying to Him. Um, next, look at 2 Timothy, same book, two chapters over, chapter 4. Look at verse 13. Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, and to teaching. Now these are three things. Three things I've only said uh, God commands the reading of Scripture, but obviously He commands the preaching of it as well through exhortation and teaching. That means read the Scripture aloud in public in the church and then teach it. Teach people how to apply it. So um, there's some significance to those words that Paul uses. So secondly, God commands the reading and preaching and teaching of Scripture. Number three, there this is two-way communication. You, you should understand our corporate worship time as a conversation with God. We're invited to worship Him through that call to worship, you know, come let us sing unto the Lord or something like that I read every Sunday. That's God's invitation to you. He's speaking to you. Come worship me. And then we respond in a song, and then there's more scripture, and then we pray. We're responding to God, and He is speaking to us throughout the service. The highlight of which is the sermon, when God speaks to us directly through His servant, our pastor, and through His Word. And then we respond again. So this whole idea of corporate worship is a give and take, a call and response. God invites, God speaks, and then we respond back to him um, with our worship, our praise, and our devotion. Next, let's look at Colossians chapter 3. A few books back. Colossians chapter 3. Look at verse 16. This one will certainly sound familiar. Now, I want to, I want to tell you something about um, wonderful stuff about reading the Scripture in the New Testament. Anytime you see a command, um, a command to do something, and then you see comma, and then you see a verb in the present tense, um, that's telling you how to do the first thing. So if I said tonight, for instance, uh, Cooper, be smart, comma, always tying your shoe and watching where you go. So what's the foundational command there? Cooper, 
be smart. Be, uh, don't be stupid. <laughs> That's the command. Be smart. How am I telling him to do that? In this specific instance, yeah, one, tie your shoe. Two, watch where you're going. So that's how I'm telling him to be smart. So keep that in mind as we read this and look for those patterns. Colossians 3.16 Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. There's a comma. Teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. Comma. Singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thanksgiving in your hearts to God. So what's the foundational command here? Let the word yeah, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Let the word of Christ, how are we to do this? You teach and admonish one another in wisdom, and you can do that by singing psalms, hymns, and spiritual song to each other. So foundationally here, number one, God, God does command us to sing. He says when you come together, sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Number two, we are to sing to one another. Now, there obviously is a time and place to sing vertically as we say to God. You know, we, we sing to God using words like you, your. You know, we ascribe things to God directly. Great is your faithfulness. We're singing to God um, from our hearts to him. But there's also a time in which we ought to sing to one another as a way of teaching and admonishing one another according to this passage. The choir sings a song every once in a while called, Come, Let Us Bow Down, and it's very simply, Come, Let Us Bow Down, Let Us Rejoice in God Our Savior. Okay, and that's, and that's, that's not to God. We're not saying to God, Come, Let Us Bow Down. We're saying to each other. There's an invitation to each other, Come, Let Us Bow Down, and that's taken directly from the Psalms also. So there's a time in which we are to sing to one another, to sing at, to teach one another by singing uh, the truths of the Scripture and of the Christian faith to each other. That's how we learn. Number three, this is a way of teaching each other. This is a way of teaching each other. So we are to sing both to God and to one another. When we sing to one another, it's a way of teaching each other. Look at Matthew chapter 28. There's something else we do in worship, a couple other things actually. We talked about prayer, reading scripture, uh, singing. Matthew chapter 28, verses 19 through 20. You will know this from, or as the Great Commission. Jesus gives some specific instructions here. Matthew 28, 19-20. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Very simply here, number one, we are to make disciples of Jesus. And I know for a fact that in your own time with your family and friends and loved ones, you are witnessing and sharing the gospel, right? I know that for a fact, um, that you're trying to do that. So what's the response to that? Number two, God commands us to baptize new disciples or new believers. Baptism is the front door, the entryway into the visible church. When you're baptized, it's not just telling God... I, want, I believe in you now. I believe in Christ. I trust the gospel. That's not what baptism, the only thing that it says, it certainly is part of it. You're telling God those things. But you're also conveying that message to the congregation, to the people that you're wishing to join with as Christians. You're, you're telling the congregation watching as witnesses and as helpers with you along the Christian life, I am joining with you uh, visibly through baptism. Now, we're not saved by baptism, are we? No. And we're saved by grace through faith alone in the gospel. Baptism is how we show that faith. That's how we display it for people to see. So uh, Jesus commands us to be baptized. And it's preferable that you're baptized in front of 
other Christians, this corporate worship. And number three, disciples should be taught. After they're made disciples of, after they're baptized, Jesus says to teach them everything. Let's go to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. We just talked about baptism. What's the other half of baptism and that uh, whole ordinance thing? Yeah, the Lord's Supper. Uh, or you might call it communion. Uh, some folks call it the Eucharist. Uh, we tend to avoid that term simply because it sounds real Catholic, and that's the term they use. Uh, it simply means a thanksgiving, and really that's what the Lord's Supper is, a thanksgiving meal, uh, remembering what the Lord has done for us on the cross and pledging our devotion to Him. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, let's look at verse 23. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Um, so here we have the command, obviously, to celebrate the Lord's Supper. Number one, we are to observe the Lord's Supper. Number two, the bread and wine communicate, notice I use the word communicate, Christ's body and blood. It's more than just a symbol, but it's also not being turned into the physical body and blood of Christ, as our Roman Catholic friends would say. It's communicating the reality of those things to our hearts by faith. Number three, there is to be order and purpose. If we were to look at what Paul is saying here in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, he's actually um, getting on to them for not celebrating the Lord's Supper correctly. Um, it seems that the rich people, who were obviously probably providing the bread and the wine for the celebration, they were getting there before everyone. They were getting drunk on the wine and filled with the bread before the poor people could even arrive and begin to celebrate with them. So, Paul is calling them out on it, saying that's not even the Lord's Supper. If you come together and you're abusing it that way, not only are you um, abusing the church and your fellow Christians, but you're abusing the actual body of Christ. And he says if you continue to disobey in this way, he, he actually says some of you because of this have already gotten sick and some of you have fallen asleep. So if we think that God has changed from the Old Testament when you know he lashed out at people for abusing worship, the same thing happens here in the New Testament to believers who abuse the Lord's Supper and take advantage of other people. God is making them sick and killing them. So there's a, there's, a, there's a proper order and purpose to the Lord's Supper that must be obeyed. And that's the same thing with all of worship. We call it the regulative principle, and that's just a big word for saying that the Bible should regulate what we do and what we do not do in worship. If the Bible says to do it, you must do it. If the Bible does not mention it explicitly and say to do it, you should probably avoid it. Now, there's a difference between talking about what we should do and what we ought not to do as far as actual things and then talking about how we do them. So let's just look at all these elements put together and let's ask that question. Number one, we, tonight we talked about prayer. That's communication with God. That's the thing you should do, whether you do that all at once out loud, whether you do it quietly in your seat, whether the pastor leads, whether um, the associate pastor leads, that, does, that stuff doesn't matter. The thing that matters is you ought to pray. Now there are some wisdom issues there we could talk about, but Christian Liberty says you have freedom as long as you pray. Number two, scripture. God speaks to us through the reading and the preaching of the scripture. Number three, singing, praising God with our voices. 
Now this can be a cappella. It can be with instruments. It can be with piano and organ, just piano, just organ, with a choir, with a praise team, with just a solo, with just a song leader, drums, guitars, harmonicas, accordions, kazoos, whatever. Those things can bring glory to God. Um, that's the how of singing that does not necessarily matter as much as the fact that you are to sing. Okay, So some of our Church of Christ and Christian church friends who may think that it's anti-biblical to have instruments because they're not mentioned in the New Testament, um, that's a, a form or how of worship, not the actual element. So we are to sing. There is freedom in how we sing. Number four, the sacraments. These are literally foretastes of heaven. Specifically, think about the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper, we eat bread, we drink juice or wine. When Jesus turned the water into wine, he was kind of saying the kingdom of God is here. Because in the Old Testament, the, all the prophets, when they talked about the great day of the Lord, when, when God is here reigning on earth and everything is made right, one of the pictures they use for that is that the mountains flow with sweet wine and there is a feast spread before all the nations. In Revelation 19, uh, with no coincidence here, before we see Christ returning on the white horse and killing everybody and there's blood on his robe and all that stuff, before we see that, there's something called the marriage supper of the Lamb, when literally the Lamb, Jesus, spreads a table before all of his people, and we eat and feast, uh, presumably, as the prophets say, on this well-aged sweet wine and on this feast that God spreads before everyone. So in that way... The Lord's Supper, even though it's just a little styrofoam-tasting cracker and a little bit of juice, that doesn't matter. It's what it is a sample of. That's that little woman outside of the Chinese restaurant at the mall that's offering you some honey chicken. That's what that is. Mmm, that's good. I need to get some more of that. And you go up to the counter and get you a plate of honey chicken and some lo mein and some soup and an egg roll, right? <laughs> that's what the Lord's Supper is. It's just a little taste of what is to come. We proclaim the Lord's death until he comes and we sit with him in heaven and feast with him. And that's really what all of worship, all of this corporate worship is about. Now look at this last point, corporate worship and eternity. Let's just wrap it up with this statement. Corporate worship is a foretaste of eternity as we delight in experiencing God through ways that he himself has commanded. This keeps us, this keeps us from idolatry and false worship. The key here is we worship God through ways that he himself has commanded. It's not up to us to be creative. It's not up to us to be imaginative. We don't have to think about new ways to worship God. God has told us how to worship him. There seems to be a fad in modern evangelicalism that tends towards creativity in worship and thinking about new ways to do things. And we just think too hard. God has told us what to do and how to do it. If we will just obey him and do it, that is worship. Can you paint in your own time? Absolutely. Can you draw in your own time and sculpt and cook and all that? And those things can bring glory to God. But bringing them into the corporate worship service is forbidden because God has not told us to do it. And if we begin to take one little thing out at a time and disobey God here and disobey God there, just like with the nation of Israel, as they continue to relax these commandments, they end up in idolatry every single time. God wants us to worship him in the ways that he showed us to keep us from false worship. So our question again, does it matter to God what we do when we worship? And the answer, of course, is yes. God tells us in his word what to do, 
and what not to do in worship. And just wrapping this all up tonight, this, this might not make any sense to you. You might not understand what I mean by faith in Christ, by the church, by the Old Testament. And all this might sound so new, and it's okay that it's new. It's okay that you don't know it. Um, if you're an unbeliever, you just haven't been exposed to it yet. If you haven't been in church, you just haven't been exposed to it. That's why you come here and you learn. But I want to say that the foundational thing in worship is that you must worship through Jesus Christ. And if you have not yet learned what it means to place your faith and trust in Jesus Christ and the gospel, do not leave here tonight without talking to me or one of these adults or someone about what it means to believe in Jesus, to be saved, to have eternal life, to be converted. Those things are so important. You cannot worship God unless you worship through Jesus and have been filled with his spirit. And those things are impossible unless you believed in the gospel and have been saved. So if you don't know what that means, contact me tonight. Talk to me tonight. And for those of you that are saved, let's continue to think about worship together and not take it for granted, but see it as a foretaste of heaven, a little taste of glory and what eternity will be like with Jesus Christ and all the saints and all the angels. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for this night and every night that you give us to come and study your word and to understand these things a little more from your word. Help us as believers to never take corporate worship for granted. Help us to always see the glory and the majesty of what's happening there, even if we don't like the song sometimes, even if we don't like the instruments sometimes. Those things don't matter. It's that the, the, we're being pointed to Jesus and we're being pointed to eternity. Lord, if there are unbelievers here, I ask that you show them the beauty of worship, show them the beauty of the gospel, and bring them to faith in you by your Holy Spirit. Save them tonight and do not let them leave without making sure that they know they have trusted in you for their salvation. We pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen. That's all for this midweek edition of Living Faith. Listen in every week for more from the preaching and teaching ministry of First Baptist Church of Avon Park, Florida. You don't want to miss any of our current Sunday morning sermon series, Roll Down, Judgment and Restoration in the Prophecy of Amos. Our senior pastor, John Beck, will be walking us through that important Old Testament book in the coming weeks. For more information about FBC 180, the youth and family ministry of First Baptist Church, you can go to our website at fbc180.com. You can find our Facebook page at facebook.com forward slash First Baptist Avon Park Youth. You can follow us on Twitter at twitter.com forward slash FBCAP180. First Baptist Church is located at 100 North Lake Avenue in Avon Park, Florida. Our Sunday service begins at 1045 in the morning. You can find all this information and more at FBCAP.net. Thanks for joining us. We'll see you again next time on Living Faith.